This is Alex Massa, and you're listening to the Labrador Leadership Podcast with Bob Nolly. Yes, they are. Live from the RVA, this is the Labrador Leadership Podcast with Dr. Bob Nolly. The program that brings you the leadership skills that can make you the most authentic, approachable leader for the sake of your business, your team, and for you. Now, here's Bob. Ladies and gentlemen, how are you? Welcome, welcome, welcome. Episode 21 of the Labrador Leadership Podcast. It is so nice here in the East right now. We've talked so much about the winter, but spring has sprung here, which makes this kind of interesting because our guest today and I talk about winter because he was buried in Boston under the many inches, nay, many feet of snow. Dave Yaron wrote that article that Alex and a lot of you resonated with about the, the reduction of our, uh, of our attention span as humans being reflected in TV shows from I Love Lucy down to Family Guy. And uh, this looped back to him and he agreed to come on the show. And you're in, you're in store for a great treat, a great conversation. We talk a little bit about that article, but mostly about uh, heeding the warning signs. And it's... Uh, it's, it's just great stuff, so sit out for a moment and listen to uh, what Dave has to offer. Let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, you all really apparently loved the series we did on Smarter Communication, particularly the episode talking about how apparently we don't have a con- concentration span of a goldfish anymore. Well, <laughs> well, today, gracious enough to join us is Dave Yaron, the author of that. Dave, welcome to the program. Bob, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, my gosh. Thank you very much, sir. We really started something with that discussion. And, of course, you started it with that article. It's, uh, it's very sharp. You are, uh, you're actually up in the B-Town today, Boston. Is that home for you? That is. I hate to bring this up. You know, we see pictures in the social media of like you being under 100 inches of snow. I'll just ask you how life is there now. Well, unfortunately, those pictures were true. It is. It was the winter of our discontent. So uh, spring is around the corner, and and hopefully some of the snow is is melting. So we'll look forward to uh, greener pastures. I guess you could say. Yeah. Will the Red Sox ever come north? I don't know. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so you you uh, do a lot of compliance and risk management work for really for really big companies, uh, and then the nature strategy for a lot of our listeners you know, starts and ends with a SWOT analysis. Is that an overly simplistic approach? I'm, I'm sure it is, but is it a good starting point to think about that? Well, I, I think it's a good starting point. I mean, I, you know, we look at risk in a couple of different ways, and certainly a SWOT analysis can get at some of that. We tend to also use a, a, a phrase or a process called a risk assessment, which gets a, a company to really fill out the radar screen, if you will, of what their risks are, just from general industry risks or uh, and information that they know about themselves internally, and really combine that into a process that helps them understand how to mitigate those risks. And we're talking about risk in the uh, in the fullest sense of the word, not just the strategic risk that lies in their business portfolio. 
That, that's right. There can be strategic risk. There can be regulatory and compliance risk. There can be all sorts of different types of risk, environmental risk, uh, just uh, sort of social risk, if you will, or, or publicity risk. There's lots of different types of risks that a company really needs to define. Uh, there's there's a thumbnail on you that says that you like doing a lot of research about news events in the past where folks have ignored the warnings. And, you know, if I'm an insider of any of those corporations, you know, I'd be hanging my head going, yeah, yeah, okay, you don't have to rub it in. But everybody on the outside, I think, aches for the lessons learned from that. Uh, you know, one of those stories, you know, you wrote about was the flight uh, 401 coming out of uh, Kennedy into Miami and the situations there. Can, can you tell that story for our audience? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's, there's plenty of, of very well-known stories in the news that have that thread of warnings that were ignored, warnings that came from very credible sources and, and people. And then there's also stories that I find that are lesser known or that people don't remember. And so back in 1972, this flight left, as you said, from Kennedy Airport in New York and was bound for Miami. And the takeoff and the flight were very uneventful. Uh, late December evening, it was just fine. And on approach into Miami, uh, literally about a minute from landing, when they put down the landing gear, one of the indicators on their cockpit panel that is supposed to show that the landing gear is in, you know, down and in locked position, one of those indicators didn't light up. And there were two possibilities. One was that, indeed, the landing gear wasn't properly descended. Or two, the more likely probability, at least that the captain thought, was that the light bulb in the cockpit panel was simply burnt out. And so at that time, in that type of aircraft, it was a four-person cockpit or crew. And he basically put everyone in the cockpit, including himself, focused on this problem of getting at that light bulb behind the cockpit panel and seeing if it was burnt out. And meanwhile, somewhere in that process, um, one of the individuals, they, they put the plane on autopilot so that they could focus on this light bulb. And they surmised that one of the individuals actually accidentally bumped the column uh, and took the, the plane out of autopilot, so it was back to manual flight. But with everybody focused on this one problem of the light bulb, nobody was actually flying the airplane. Nobody was looking at the altitude, and the plane tragically ended up crashing. Um, so 30 or so people survived, but over 100 people were killed, in, including the crew. And really the, the takeaway of that unfortunate story was that people can over-focus on one problem or issue at the expense of, of bigger problems or, or issues. And it is a lesson for organizations and individuals um, in their personal lives as well. Well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, a guy, I'm a big guy, so struggling in, a, in an economy seat, you know, that's struggle enough for me. And I'm sure I'll never be in the cockpit of an L-1011 or anywhere else. But, you know, right. it seems very cramped and small. And to have, you know, a crew of four struggling with, you know, trying to get a hold of something the size of a quarter is, uh, gee, that, that just seems difficult at best. It, it, it really is an amazing story, Bob. And when I read about it, it's really, as, as I imagine most people would react when they hear that story, it's unfathomable to think that you took the entire flight crew to focus on this one problem. But again, it, it, it happens. And the story or the, the incident led to an evolution um, in several industries, but one, of course, was aviation and what they call crew resource management. And in critical situations like that, it's important that everybody have an assigned task so that all of the key responsibilities are assigned to somebody. And in, in that situation, of course, flying the airplane, it sounds painfully obvious, but 
um, it led to that evolution. And an example of where it was deployed successfully was uh, Captain Chesley Sullenberger in the U.S. Air Flight uh, five or six years ago where he was able to land successfully in the Hudson River. He deployed that type of crew resource management. The second the engines went out, the first thing he declared was, I'm flying the airplane. Yeah, that's and a much happier ending to that story for sure. Exactly. And what what came out of the uh, of the first though is this uh, the development of something called the CRM, the Crew Resource Management. Was that just at that airline or industry wide? Did that prevail? Industry wide, and in fact, I think it was adopted by multiple industries um, that learned of of that accident. And again, it's. It's a takeaway for really any industry. And like you said, you know, few of us are going to be flying L-1011s. But the takeaway for any industry where, you know, as you mentioned earlier, let's say you're focused on one particular risk, you really want to make sure that you have people, the right people assigned to different types of risks in your organization so you're not over-focusing on one at the expense of others. So when we say that in hindsight, the CRM program get, gets rolled out and people kind of nod, yes, okay, we've documented what happened and it's never going to happen again because we've taken these steps. There are certain clear elements that are in that program that make a lot of sense. And at the top of that is some oversight at the highest level, which is, you know, the C-suite buy-in, I, I think, to that whole concept. Is that correct? That, that, that is correct. You really have to have, it, it goes beyond just policies and procedures, let's say, but a culture that says we're going to look at, as I mentioned earlier, the radar screen of our various risks so that hopefully we're not missing any. And again, that we can, we can assign them to certain people um, so that they're being monitored appropriately. And of course, when you roll something like that out, you have massive training and education of everybody at first. But of course, then you have to train all everybody that comes to the organization after the fact of implementation and make sure that's part of their onboarding. That's right. And I'm sure, you know, uh, some group, perhaps the audit committee is a subunit of the board of directors, you know, takes on responsibility for that. Uh, is it? It seems like something like that, even though it is a tragic chapter in the history of an organization, uh, how how open is the organization to uh, making sure they don't fan the flames of that? That's not quite right. But making sure people are reminded, insiders, how how important that is, and please be vigilant. How you know how do they get that message down to the line? Right. You know, it, 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 is, it is a very important thing to do. And people in our line of work and regulatory compliance talk about tone at the top. And as you mentioned, you know, part of the training has to include message that is very simple and that can get across to all staff and all, you know, lines of business, which is really, if you have a question or concern, report it. Um, you know, I, I talk about the information within companies more often than not had information which had they acted on it or had they heard about it, they could have avoided tragedies or disasters. And so, you know, the, the message to employees in your training and in different types of messaging is to speak up. And you also have to have the systems and programs in place that allow them to speak up anonymously if necessary, if that makes them feel more comfortable to do so. So companies that do this well deploy hotlines that allow people to report questions or concerns anonymously. And that's, that's some of the ways that 
companies do this effectively. Yeah, the hotline can be very effective because if you just rely on them to go to their supervisor, their next line manager immediately above them, then issues of uh, personality and approachability all come into play there now with issues that could you know, be very substantial to the welfare of so many. That's, that, that's right. The ideal, if you've really created a culture that listens well and makes feel comfortable to report things, ideally down the road, it's a culture that where people feel comfortable to report something to a direct supervisor. But we have to deal with the reality and possibility, as you just mentioned, that people may not feel comfortable for a number of different reasons. And so you really have to, you have, to have systems set up that lets them do that anonymously if they feel the need to. You have a uh, book that is either out or about to come out called Fair Warning, The Information Within. Can you tell us about that? Sure. It, it takes stories, and again, as I mentioned before, stories, some of which are, some of which are well-known in the news, um, whether you talk about Bernie Madoff, where you talk about the BP Gulf oil rig explosion, um, the space shuttle disasters, both of the space shuttles that, that tragically blew up, um, and the theme that runs through those stories, and then through lesser-known stories like the flight, of four, flight 401, and that theme is that people, and not just people, but credible people, we're trying to warn individuals about the impending disaster that was, was going to unfold. And for a number of reasons, they either weren't listened to or maybe somebody heard them but decided not to act on these warnings. And the reasons that I point to have a lot to do with social psychology. And ultimately, what I'm saying is that I think it's unfortunately part of human nature, part of our DNA, that we have a tendency to ignore these types of warnings. And only when we begin to recognize that will it allow ourselves to create cultures in which people really can listen better, to, to not put up that wall that many people put up when these types of warnings are brought to them. The, uh, the folks that are the usual listeners here in the, the lavies, as I call them, are about to get an adult dose of emotional leadership and, I, and I'm emotional intelligence, rather. And that's a big component of that being open to that uh, and understanding your responses to that. Uh, thanks for the explanation of that. That was, that was excellent. I, uh, I, I do have to tell you, the, uh, the article you wrote on, on communicating with younger employees in the TV shows really did resonate with a lot of us here. Uh, you compare the, uh, the scene times and the number of cuts in uh, I Love Lucy uh, Cheers and Modern Family, and, and Dallas Lee. We've got listeners that don't know about I Love Lucy at all. And, <laughs> uh, but you know, t t tell me what you know. What was what was the spark to do that piece of research? What did you see? I I remember. You know, I'm glad that the article resonated with with the listeners. I remember that I started with, and I think I was watching Modern Family, which I, I find to be a hilarious show. But it just struck me at how quickly the scenes and the settings would jump from one to the next. And, you know, being a, a student of pop culture of sorts over the years, it just, as I was sitting there, I started thinking about other television shows that I used to like when I was growing up, and Cheers came to mind. Um, and then I thought about television shows maybe I didn't grow up with, but I saw in reruns, I Love Lucy. And I said, wow, I, I don't remember the scenes or the settings jumping so quickly. And I said, well, let me test that theory. So, you know, sure enough, I, I sat back down with the episode of Modern Family and using the DVR kind of timed each, each time a scene would change. And then I did the same thing with Cheers and I Love Lucy. And, and sure enough, 
you know, the scenes jump more frequently and in quicker fashion today than I think they did um, in, in yesterday's shows. And I think that has a lot to do with our decreasing attention spans. Oh, uh, absolutely. Without, without a doubt. You know, TV was just entering, you know, the golden days, I guess, you know, just after its launch when I Love Lucy comes on. And the only point of comparison for people that were creating that and writing that show, including the talent themselves, was theater. You know, right. whether it be movies or, or live drama, because think of how a, a scene opens, you know, you're in a theater and the lights come up and the, the performers come out of the wings and the, and the music drops down. And that's the way every episode of I Love Lucy started. And they were, you know, when, okay, we have two commercial breaks and then a scene before and after each. So you end up with five scenes through the whole thing. And That's right. each scene ended with a laugh track coming up and the music coming up. And then we saw a soap commercial or something like that. Now it's just so different. The cuts are so quick and the editing is almost just as big a part as the acting is to adding value to those shows. But it does relate to the attention span that we've created, you know, largely just the nature of the of uh, social media and uh, as plugged in a culture as we're in now. That's right. So, uh, and the, the underlining uh, fact was the uh, fact you plucked out of uh, of the uh, research that says we don't have the concentration span of a goldfish. So <laughs> we're we're actually a second behind. The, we're a second worse than the goldfish, apparently. So <laughs> we, we're really in trouble. So if uh, if you were uh, if you were a recruiter or a coach, and you may well be in in some roles that you're in. And you got your hands on a, uh, a freshly minted MBA coming out of a great school. What's the number one piece of advice you tell them? Well, I, you know, I think it's in, in terms of communicating with that portion of our workforce. I, I think a lot of people start out and take a negative view of it. You know, so many people who are a little bit older, like ourselves, let's say, in the workplace, and the immediate response is to take a negative view on it. I don't think it's a negative view. This is simply the way of the world now as compared to the way the world used to be. For all the reasons that you just mentioned, social media is different and education is different and the environment is different. Um, but I do think we need to think strongly about how we communicate with that portion of our workforce. And if you go with the premise that our attention spans are, are much shorter, but you're still having that traditional lengthy meeting with a long slide deck in which somebody is essentially reading back the slides. Death by PowerPoint. <laughs> by, by PowerPoint, I, I really truly believe you're going to lose today's audience in that. And so the advice is to really rethink how you're communicating with your workforce, and again, particularly your younger workforce, because I don't, I don't think your message or messaging is going to get through as effectively as it might have with the workforce of, you know, maybe even 10 years ago. It's, it's a dramatic change. Isn't that a great family dynamic, too? I, I don't think I shared this on the air when we first discussed it. But uh, that your 17-year-old your daughter, I'm sure I, I'm plugging in her, rolling her eyes and looking at you and going, no, Dad, do it like this. You know, you're flipping the pyramid upside down. What was her point there? Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I asked her, I said, you know, for example, when you're in school, what kind of lessons or, or teaching strategies seem to work better for you and, and your classmates? And she really worked through that kind of lining up what your, the point is to be made through the facts and using that inverted pyramid format to do that. And, and her feeling is that that ties together 
what you know the teacher, let's say, is trying to tell the class rather than going through some long, lengthy discourse about it. And so, you know, again, that's probably a fundamental shift in the way teaching is going on today versus the way it may have been when when we were in school. Yeah, I've I've been in teaching organization in a in a university, and you know, I have lots of faculty, and I keep having to account to them now. I went, you're part entertainer now. Just don't sit on those degrees and think that's going to do it for you. What time right. does the show start every day? Right. I mean, let's face it. If you want to talk about my daughter or today's teenage uh, population out there, I'm a lot more effective if I send her a text message than sure. if I were to call her on the phone and leave a lengthy voicemail. So that probably highlights the same theme. Sure. The folks in you and I are expect to have our children come back on, on a weekend evening and have dinner with us and have lengthy conversations and share the stories of your week. I'm lucky if I get a text and I feel, <laughs> right. I feel the same way at this point. You know, you, right. you mentioned uh, things that we read and studied when we were when we were going through the educational process. One of the guys that really resonated with me was uh, Peter Senge and his whole concept of the learning organization and how difficult it is to get organizations to shift to be that. Some some have been uh, more successful than others in in doing that. Uh, you still see that trend out there. I, I do see that trend. Um, I have worked with some organizations, in fairness, that I think um, voluntarily, just of their own culture and their own desire, do a tremendous job with learning and education. Unfortunately, I also see a lot of organizations that give it what I'll call lip service until something bad really happens. And then um, either just by learning through that bad event or if they have to have a settlement, let's say, with the government that mandates training, as part of their settlement agreement, then they finally, you know, get religion, if you will, around training. And and I don't think there's any better investment in employees than than training them, and really showing them that this is something we believe is important in our organization, not just because we got in trouble and somebody told us to do it, um, but because it's it, it it helps you as an employee to get you done what you need to get done, and helps us as a company. And it's an investment in you, and it's an investment in us. That's a great perspective. Having pulled up Sengi's name, I'll pull up another, uh, Michael Porter and his model for strategy. You know, the strategies being developed today could take on many different approaches for sure, particularly from a textbook environment. But nonetheless, do you feel today in this environment, in this market globally, do you see more organizations really with a little cash in their pockets looking over the fence and thinking, what can we do next? Or is there still more of a uh, defensive protect, uh, protective posture uh, going on out there? No, I think, and particularly with what looks like an, an improving economy, both in the U.S. and abroad, and capital markets are better. I, you know, when we went through the period of the down economy, of course, it was more of a defensive strategy, as you were saying. But I think today, with with signals and indicators improving people are looking at, you know, what's our next play? And they're looking for not just opportunities in the U.S., but I do believe that they're looking uh, at opportunities abroad. I, I work a lot in healthcare, and that's an industry that I came from prior to becoming a, a consultant when I was an administrator. And I think there is more activity now in healthcare where people are, are asking just what you said, which is, you know, what can we do next? How can we expand? How can we grow? Um, and that's including not only the U.S., but another parts of the world like China, for example. And in healthcare, I didn't hear so many of those conversations five, ten years ago. So I, I think things are changing. And that's good news for all of us. 
Uh, Dave, this will this will be the highlight of the day. Thank you for so much for being here. If people need want to find you, where can they find you? Well, they can find me on Twitter at, at Dave Yaron. Um, they can find me on my website, DaveYaron.com. And I also maintain a magazine on an app called Flipboard, which allows you to create your own personalized magazine. And of course, I've created a, one around this fair warning theme that I've talked about. So they can certainly find me in any of those places. And folks, we will link all of those up for you in the show notes. Dave, thanks very much. Spring will come to you soon. It's on its way. I hope so. Thanks, for, thanks Bob, for having me. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Labrador Leadership Podcast. For the sake of all the special people in your life that deserve you to be the best leader you can be. Connect with us on our website at labradorleadership.com, on Facebook at Labrador Leadership, and on Twitter at Lab Leadership. Now, here's a final thought from Bob. From Bob, Bob, Bob. Oh, many, many, many thanks to Dave Yaron for coming on the show and sharing that with us. Dave, thanks. It was great stuff. Alex is back with me next time when we try to lift the cloud on our whole issue of stress. Have a great week, everybody.